Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1. And we're going to read together uh, these six verses that begin the book of the Psalms. Before we read, let us seek the Lord and His help to understand. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray as we come to posture our hearts underneath Your Word. We pray that You would take Your Word, which is living and active, and You would pierce our hearts. Lord, show us Your glory, Your greatness, what You require of us, and lead us to see our need of You and how we should live to please You. Enlighten our eyes, for we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, Psalm 1, here now. God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may He bless His word tonight to our hearts. Well, I confess at the beginning, it's a little strange to start a series in a book with chapter 2, which is essentially what we did when I had Parks already preach to you Psalm 2. I won't go into all the scheduling reasons as to why we did it that way, but we come back tonight to where we should begin, that is the beginning to Psalm 1, which Thomas Watson called the, the Psalm of Psalms the gateway to the Psalter. But before I start opening up this text in particular and really explaining some connections at the start of the Psalter between Psalms 1 and Psalm 2, let me first, and this will be the first of four things I'm going to tell you tonight, let me first make a few introductory comments about the Psalms as a whole. It's a long book, and it requires, I think, a a lot of things to think about as we come to approach this lengthy book. Now, this is background information, and I know some of you are not excited about background information, but I hope it proves useful to you anyway. You see, the book of Psalms is a very unique book in Scripture for several reasons, and I'm going to mention five. Number one, unlike most books, here there are a handful of authors There, of course, David. David writes about half of the Psalms, maybe slightly more because the New Testament will mention a couple of Psalms that he wrote, that there was no title saying he wrote it in the Psalms. But then we also have Moses and Solomon. We have Heman and Ethan and Asaph, three guys that David had appointed to be singers in Israel. Then there are the sons of Korah, a Levitical family, perhaps a guild of Levites, Not to mention, of course, the most famous author, Anonymous. About 50 or so of those. Now, what value is there in so many different authors? Well, it means we're going to get descriptions of the life of faith 
from a number of sources among the people of God. In other words, you can't say, oh, that's just David's poetic reflections on the struggles of faithfulness to God. No, we're going to see the thrilling mercies of God and the dark night of the soul from a number of different people among the body of faith, showing us really what is normal in the Christian life. So that's first. Second, it's clear that the Psalms, with the exception of Moses' Psalm, which is Psalm 90, the Psalms as a whole focus on the time of the Davidic kingship. So the Psalms are focusing a lot on the Davidic kingship. Through its establishment and its conflict with Saul, the glory of the Davidic kingdom, its then descent into trouble through disobedience, its overthrow, its exile, and then the celebration of return as we anticipate after the exile, a people gathered together again, but always looking forward to a great Davidic king to come. Now, Chronicles has actually been good preparation for us here because like Chronicles, the book of Psalms moves from around 1000 B.C. to restoration after the exile, say about the 530s B.C. And if we include the Psalm of Moses, we really cover almost the whole span of biblical history. It's one of the reasons why Luther called the Psalms a Bible in miniature. We have the whole history of God's people. We have all the great acts of God on behalf of His people. And therefore, we also have a multi-generational witness to the life of faith among Israel and how our God doesn't change. God is the same in Moses' day, in David's day, and after the exile. In Psalms 78 and 145, both these psalms will actually talk about this multi-generational witness. Namely, that we teach our children the deeds of the Lord, that they would teach their children, and then a generation yet unborn would know the mighty works of God. So it's a unique book with many authors. It's focused on the Davidic kingdom. Thirdly, a unique element to the Psalms is the book of Psalms is really five books. Now, at some point, perhaps in the days of Ezra, maybe later, someone or a few someones compiled the various books of the Psalms into one grand book. And each of the five books closes with a doxology, which was editorial, editorially given. Each book has distinctive elements. Book one, it will predominantly use the name Yahweh for God, the covenant name. Book two will pre- predominantly use the name Elohim, uh, the God of creation from Genesis 1. However, as we look at the whole, the parts of these various books fit into the whole, taking us from confrontation a struggle between the righteous and the wicked, which will be a major theme of book one, to consummation with the Davidic king reigning in Zion, that is the dwelling place of God Almighty, which will be a theme of book five. Now, I don't usually recommend resources here, but this overarching structure, if you're interested in considering it, can be studied in a wonderful book by Palmer Robertson called The Flow of the Psalms. Gives you a lot of the background as to how the Psalter as a whole can be put together. And you can see by the size of this book, there's quite a lot to say. 
that I'm not saying. Well, in this collection of five books, many have noted that perhaps there's an intentional imitation of the five books of Moses. In Jewish tradition, even before Christ, Psalter readings were paired with the five books of Moses. In Luke 24, Jesus will refer to three categories of Scripture. Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the entry point to the writings, saying, these speak of me. And by the way, this is going to affect my long-term preaching plan. This is my uh, 15-year plan. We're going to alternate between books of the Psalms and the books of Moses. That will be what we're doing on Sunday evening for a, a very long time. But for our purposes tonight, we need to understand that God used an editor, a gatherer, to collect the various praises sung to God and to draw them together for the purpose of worship. And that leads me to a fourth thing to say, a fourth unique feature. The Psalms were written to be sung. The Psalms were written to be sung. Now, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, do not contain all the songs of Israel. We have Moses' songs of Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. We have Deborah's song, Hannah's song, Hezekiah's song, Habakkuk's song, not to mention songs that David wrote that are not in the Psalms. But this collection was preserved for God's people to use in worship. And along the way, we'll get little musical notes for the choir director according to the tune of so-and-so with stringed instruments. These are the kinds of things that we're going to hear in various titles. Now, psalm singing has fallen on hard times in the modern church. But throughout the history of the church, the psalms have always been sung. Not exclusively, but continually. And in fact, we should ask ourselves a question. Why would the church suddenly stop singing what God's people have been singing for 3,000 years? Why would we do that? These songs help us internalize the truth. And I just want you to think for a second about young Mary, the mother of Jesus, with respect to internalizing the truth. Mary, as we meet her in Luke chapter 1, is probably 12 to 14 years old. We're not really sure. She's poor, we know that. She was likely illiterate. So she's just a lowly Israelite girl. She makes reference to her humble estate. And when Gabriel brings the news that she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit and bear the very Son of God, how does she respond? She sings. Luke 1, Mary's Magnificat. And her song, get this, alludes to ten different psalms. And then she makes two direct quotations from the Psalter. Psalm 103 and Psalm 107. And you need to ask yourself, if she's illiterate, how did she know this much Scripture? Because she sang it. And singing it, put it into her heart. Brethren, that is a lesson that we're to learn. It's why we sing the psalms. It bugged the reformers that the people of God had stopped singing the Word of God. Or more than that, that they were singing in a language that nobody spoke. So it was a great deal to the reformers to take the songbook of the Bible and put it into the language of the people so that we can sing the truth of God. The psalms are meant to be sung. And then finally, 
These psalms, in their vast variety, express the full spectrum of the Christian life. The totality of the experiences of the believer. What do I mean by that? Well, there are hymns of praise and there are laments. There are anticipations of future glory and there are sad reflections on the past. There are personal confessions of sin, corporate confessions of sin, surveys of covenant history, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of confidence, wisdom psalms, royal psalms, psalms of travel, the psalms of ascent, messianic psalms, and hallelujah psalms. It's a whole study of genre to come into the book. And the poetry reflected in these psalms can reflect a complex acrostic poem. You remember what an acrostic is from your English literature class that you've tried to suppress? That you take all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and you write something with them? Psalm 119 is an elaborate acrostic poem. Do you know the discipline it would take to write 176 verses of an acrostic poem in praise to God? And then there can be poetry that's just short bursts of praise, like Psalm 117. Two verses to bless the Lord as a call to worship. The images that we're going to get in the Psalms can lead us to the rousing prospect of worship. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Or they can take us to those who totter in their faith. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. We can go from the beauty of corporate worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord to the taste of loneliness and suffering. Darkness has become my only companion. What an encouragement it is for us to know that whether the soul is on fire or we're feeling dejected, that both of them are legitimate expressions of faith as we come to God. And yet amidst all these features of the Psalms, and there are many more that I haven't included here, the Psalms really ultimately do two things. They show us God. They show us His titles, His character, His ways, His promises, how He interacts with His people, and specifically, the hope of a great Savior to bring liberation to us. And then they show us the ups and downs of the life of the believer. John Calvin famously said, and I quote, that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as a mirror. We see our souls when we come to the Psalms. The Psalms show us the emotional life of our Lord Jesus portraying His internal sufferings in a way that the Gospels don't even do and showing us the great joy of the salvation of God's people. So the Psalms, brethren, show us not only what to think, they show us what we're to feel as God's people. Sometimes we're exultant. Sometimes we're in the depths. But the Psalms teach us how to rely upon God in the fluctuation of our feeling. And they give us the heart or the affections of faith. There is no coldness, no dry theology here because we have a theology that we can sing. And there ought to be, yes, sorrows in the trouble of life and there ought to be a delight in God. And we see that delight even as we get started tonight. So we're introduced to the Psalms as a whole. And now we turn to Psalm 1. But in the second place, it's important to recognize that there's a connection 
between Psalms 1 and 2. These two Psalms highlight two peoples, two paths, and two prospects or two destinies. There is blessedness. How does Psalm 1 begin? Blessed is the man, on the positive side, who delights in the law of the Lord. What does Psalm 2 tell us at the end? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, in the Son. This blessedness is contrasted then with the end of those who reject God's law and reject God's Son. Psalm 1.6 The way of the wicked will what? Perish. Well, what happens if you don't kiss the Son? Psalm 2 Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. So these two Psalms are at the start of the Psalter as we might call them gates of godliness stretching the key th- or stressing to us the key themes of life and communion with God two ways are contrasted the righteous who delight in God's law all of his teaching versus the wicked who reject the law of God the former hear the shepherd's voice they kiss the son and take refuge in him but the latter rebel against God's Christ and don't do what he says so Psalms 1 and 2 set up for us the major themes reverberating through the Psalms. Submission to God's Word and submission to God's King. And of course, these two themes are intertwined because you can't have allegiance to God's King if you won't hear His voice. Indeed, just as Psalm 2 depicted the unfolding conflict of Genesis 3.15, a people at enmity with God trying to rebel against the Lord and His Christ. Psalm 1 is going to show us that same idea. It's highlighting the contrast and conflict between the righteous and the wicked, the sons of God and the sons of wrath. Well, let's go ahead now and open the door into the Psalter with Psalm 1. And we're going to think about two ways, much like Jesus sets before us in Matthew 7. There's a narrow way that leads to life and a broad road that leads to destruction. But here we'll see it cast as the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So this is really the third point, but now getting into the text. The way of the righteous, verses 1-3. to Psalm 1 begins with a portrait of the blessed man. Or better, the man on whom a multiplicity of blessing is found. The word blessed is in the plural in the original, indicating that this man has the rich blessings showered upon him of the living God. However, tested and afflicted the godly person might be, or the godly woman might be, he or she is yet the possessor of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. But how do we know the children of blessing apart from the children of this world? Well, we know them, as Jesus said, by their fruits. It's not that the blessing here being discussed is merited, that spiritual privileges are secured by our faithfulness. Adam and Eve lost blessing. That's why we need a Messiah who would usher us back into blessing. And it is God alone who circumcises the heart, who brings redemption to our life. And when He does that, He brings His blessings. But if we have sat and drunk deeply of the fountain of living waters, believers now abide in blessing and we show our loyalty to the Lord by conducting our lives in a certain way. Indeed, the blessed man here in Psalm 1 
a man with an array of blessings who's made happy in his soul, he has a particular course of life. That is, he's separated from the world. Notice how the description of the blessed man begins with the negative. Blessed is the man who walks not. Now, the word walk in the Bible is a very important word. Biblically speaking, the walk of a person is his or her course of life. If you walk in the ways of the wicked, then you are wicked. But from the outset of the Bible, the godly walked with God. What were Adam and Eve doing in the garden? They were walking with God in the cool of the day. What did Enoch do amidst the depressing refrain of Genesis 5? And he died, and he died, and he died. Enoch walked with God. What did Noah do while violence is being multiplied on the earth? Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Noah walked with God. What is Abraham called to do? Genesis 17, he is to walk before God and be blameless. The believer is then concerned with how to walk and with whom we are walking. Thus we see here that the blessed man, the man who's experiencing God's blessing, shuns the wicked. Note the text, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now I want you to notice the brilliance of Hebrew parallelism. It's a poetic device in Hebrew poetry. It's used throughout the Psalms where you say something and then you repeat it in slightly different language, but intensify the idea in the next phrase. Here, there's an intensification of evil depicted in slowing down in your walk. Walking, standing, sitting. And the idea is being sucked into the world. As the godly person lives or walks in his public life, there's going to be a challenge to our allegiance. The world in the imagery of Revelation 17 is a great harlot, a seducer. And the world allures us or seduces us in three ways. It's counsel, it's way or behavior, and it's sense of belonging, who we sit with. And each of these allurements are being addressed by the psalmist. First, brethren, the world has a way of thinking, an outlook, a mindset that forms plans. The world offers to us advice, counsel. How does the world do this? Well, it uses powerful mediums. Music. All those 70 songs some of you still know. Literature. Movies. News reports, Twitter feeds, Facebook groups, reels on Instagram, party platforms. The world is offering you counsel. But then there's also the subtle offer of counsel. Regular conversation with a person who sees the world without Scripture spectacles. That is, they think and talk without reference to God and His Word. Now that person could look morally upstanding. That person could sit beside you in the assembly of God's people, yet mutter maddening lies that deny God. You don't need to pray before you make a decision. Just follow your heart. Or that encourage you towards self-indulgence. 
You know, just do whatever you think is right. If it doesn't hurt anyone, do what makes you happy. Satisfy yourself. But the blessed man resolutely refuses to be pulled by the tractor beam of advice from the wicked. Because there's progress here. You remember the story if you give a pig a pancake or if you give a mouse a cookie. If you listen to the advice of the world, if you accept, accept their way of thinking, then the next thing you'll do is stand in the way of sinners. That is, you'll adopt their patterns of behavior. It's one thing for you to entertain rotten counsel in your mind. Avenge yourself. Fight your battles. Don't take nothing from nobody. That's the kind of advice we get from the world. But it's another thing to then step into rotten conduct. Thus, the righteous, the blessed man, he not only stops up his ears to the advice of whirlwings, as if they would know what pleases God anyway, he simply will not stand with sinners and engage in their behavior. When sinners entice him to come and join the fun, he won't align himself with them. He draws a line in the sand so as not to stand side by side with evil men in their actions. Rather, he's going to be a distinct man, a countercultural man. It already begs the question. Brethren, are we a distinct people? In the Old Testament, one of the functions of the ceremonial and civil law was just to teach the people their distinction. They wore different clothes. They had a different diet. They talked differently. They worshipped in a different way. Everything about life was to communicate to them, you're set apart. You're different. You are not to join with the world. And that makes... The, the wickedness pervasive when they run after what the world would offer them. Well, we don't live in the Old Testament season anymore. We've been brought into a new age. Nevertheless, we have been called saints, holy ones, a set-apart people, redeemed by the blood of Christ, sealed with the Spirit. Are we living then in view of our calling that we're not conformed to the pattern of this world? We're a distinct people. Are we distinct? Can people look at us and know that person's different? Now such a thing may draw severe criticism. I say may, it really will because Jesus told us it would. But the blessed man understands that God has set him apart. He has to come out and be separate. Thoughts and actions are not neutral things. They have to be evaluated. If you don't see through corrupt advice, if you stumble into what sinners do with their language, with their lifestyle, you will soon be found sitting in the seat of scoffers. That is, the progression here leads to belonging to the people who mock God. Now I want you to think of this description as moving from walking to standing to sitting as joining a gang, trying to paint it in a really ugly picture. You hear their appeal against a common enemy. You're initiated with some type of evil behavior that they countenance. And then you're part of the group where you sit with them and you actually become comfortable denouncing the way of blessed living. Or to use Paul's language, you know that the things that you do are worthy of death, but you not only do them, 
you encourage others to engage in them with you. And then you're filled with a scathing unbelief. Well, the blessed man will not be deceived by the idol of I want to belong. I'll do anything to fit in so that he adopts the most fatal of the world's attitudes, scoffing at God. But brother, let us remember this slippery slope to scoffing may not look like hanging out with thugs and joining a gang. The advice of whirlings can come through your teachers and leaders. Jeroboam, Israel's king, is the one who started calf worship in Bethel and Dan, and Israel never escapes it. It can sound like it's coming from your friends. David's friends told him he should stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and strike him down right now. It could even come through your family. Whose idea was it that Abraham should go into Hagar? It was his wife's. Discernment is required. Every thought has to be taken captive and made obedient to Christ. Because we belong to Him. He shows us the way. He gives us counsel. Well, are we listening? Or will we be squeezed into the world's mold? And if active resistance isn't taken, this lazy river of a sin-ruined world will carry you on a drift towards destruction. There must be resistance. There must be distinction. That's the negative. But then there's also the positive action. The blessed man walks not in the mess of the world, but rather his delight is in the law of the Lord. The law, the Torah, the instruction of God. Now the law here doesn't mean narrowly the Ten Commandments or even the the five books of Moses, though it's used in both of those ways. The law, the Torah of Psalm 1 is comprehensive. The delight is in the totality of what God has given. What God has written down for us is our guide. So the pattern of the blessed man is to turn the volume down on the world's noise and drink deeply from God's book. More than that though, brethren, there's a longing for God's book, for the instruction. The man who has been blessed of the Lord is a man who shows it with his affections. He delights in the law of the Lord. He wants to know God. He wants to know what God requires. Reading the Scripture is not an ordeal to him. Something to get out of the way so I can hurry up and watch TikTok. Or I can hurry up and lose myself in the cable news cycle. Or I can hurry up and stalk people on Facebook. God's Word is not an addendum to life. It's the thing we live for. It's a thrill. There's a joy in learning about God and seeing His amazing grace and His faithfulness, His constant display of steadfast love. Is that true of our hearts? Further, it's not just that the Bible gives the blessed man a, a certain feeling. You know, he, he feels better when he sees a, a Scripture verse. No, the blessed man is preoccupied with the Word. He meditates on God's instruction day and night. That doesn't mean you don't do anything else in life. It means there's an attention regularly to the Word of God. Now, what exactly does it mean to meditate? When we hear that word, we think of Eastern religion where you clear your mind. That is demonic. Let me say that again so you make sure you heard me. That is demonic. Biblical meditation literally means 
to mutter or to muse, to murmur. The idea is a sense of talking to yourself, repeating the word over and over. Only what are you saying over and over? You're saying God's word. You've probably seen at some point in your life, a number of you, the Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem with a book in their hand and they're rocking back and forth and they're talking to themselves. What are they doing? They're meditating. They're reading the Bible. That's the literal sense of meditating. Reading the Bible out loud to yourself. But that alone can't encompass meditation. The idea is saying the Word of God to yourself so that it gets in your heart. The reason you reject the counsel of the wicked is you have better counselors. You have God's Word. And you search the Scriptures and you're captivated with God's truth. You crave it, as Peter says, like a newborn baby. And you constantly feed on it that you might grow up in salvation. Well, is this us? You probably say, well, yeah, I'm here on a Sunday night. But brethren, do we have an appetite for the Word of God? Do we think about what He tells us and how His instruction should shape everything we do in life? Are we able to feed ourselves spiritually? Can we inwardly digest the Word so that we put on spiritual muscle? I don't just mean here gaining knowledge, though that will inevitably happen. Do you apply the Word to your life? Do you rejoice in the truth? Love the truth? Examine yourself by the truth? Do you daily ponder the truth? Do you bring your thoughts, your feelings, and measure it against the Word and weigh it? Are you consistently taking in the Word of God? That's what the psalmist is saying. Our daily diet is to enjoy what God has given us in the Word. And brethren, when we do this, in the face of all of our fiery trials, what happens? Well, when your arm has become a pincushion because chemotherapy has shriveled your veins, not that I'm speaking from experience, and when you feel like a deflated balloon emotionally and spiritually, the fingernails of your faith grip Psalm 56. This I know, that God is for me. Or Psalm 142, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Or Psalm 9, You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. And what is the result of those who live lives like this? Verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that He does, He prospers. If we draw vitality from the Word of God as a river, we will bear fruit, we are evergreen, and we prosper. Now, that does not mean prosperity according to the world's definition. Your bank account is full of money. You're at the top of your field in whatever business or employment area you work. No, this prosperity is a spiritual success. It's akin to Psalm 84. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Well, I don't know, Lord. It looks like the righteous are afflicted and poor and needy and suffering all kinds of hard things. The good things are not just physical things, brethren, they're spiritual things. Peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, assurance of the love of God, and the knowledge that grace will meet me to the very end of my life. So the blessed man is a rooted man. His house is built upon a rock. And when trouble comes, when the wind and waves threaten, he can't be destroyed. 
This, beloved, is a lively faith. There's no boring religion here. There's constant growth because the Word of God feeds you. Is that happening in our hearts? Are our souls saturated with God's Word so that we blossom and we're steady? This is the way of the righteous. But then lastly, there's another way. The way of the wicked. Now the psalmist gave us a picture book of the believer's life, and it's a beautiful picture. Steadiness, freshness, growth, endurance. But then there's the ugly contrast in verse 4. Now note the abruptness. The wicked are not so. Now let me say I'm, I'm conscious of the time. I know I took a long, long time to introduce things to you. This will not be as long as the sermon you heard a few weeks back. The picture here that the wicked are not so indicates that there's no liveliness, no roots, no prosperity. Instead, they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. What good is chaff? It's rootless stubble, weightless garbage, totally useless. It's only good to be burned. What an awful picture. Now, the wicked may not appear to be a people without substance. They may be strong. They may be powerful. They may be prosperous in the world's eyes. But the psalmist is looking at things from God's perspective. And when the wicked come to the end, they're seen for what they are. They are men of straw. They've built their lives on the sand. They have no lasting hope. Their whole lives testify that their life is a waste. It reminds me of John Piper's famous Don't Waste Your Life sermon, which has now been expanded to a whole book on that topic. But here was the illustration that birthed it. He told of reading it of a Reader's Digest article in the early 80s about a couple who made a lot of money, retired early, bought a yacht, and sailed around Florida. And they spent their days collecting shelves. Doesn't it sound wonderful? Piper said, what a wasted life. Because when they stand before God in judgment, what are they going to say to Him? Lord, look at my shells. What did you do with your life? Is that all you have to give to Jesus Christ? That your life was totally wrapped up in self-indulgence and personal satisfaction? That you never lived unto Christ? So when the judgment comes, these successful people, will have nothing. And the psalmist takes us to the judgment, verse 5, therefore because the wicked bear no fruit, therefore they will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. These people are not justified. They have no legitimate profession. If their confession was, Lord, Lord, what will they hear? I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. These folks snuggled up to the world. They adopted the world's mindset and they gave no resistance. So they will have no communion. They will not enjoy the blessed life of eternity with God in righteousness. They wanted to belong to the world. So they will not belong in heaven. Brethren, this short earth, with whatever passing pleasures it offers, if you're sucked into that, it will lead to an eternity of exclusion with no blessing. How horrific. The psalmist is warning us to consider carefully how we walk. Do you understand what he's saying? 
our lives right now matter for eternity. What we think today matters. What we feel right now matters. Our conduct now matters. Do we see that? Will we be found in the last day standing on the rock or having no leg on which to stand? Now you might wonder, wow, man, this is a really dark beginning to a book. I don't know if I want to read the whole thing. Well, one commentator I think puts it helpfully, seldom do men forsake a wicked wife until they are convinced of its misery. And that's the intent of the psalmist. Of course, you understand this is the great charade of the devil. He wants to convince you that the wicked wife is exciting. It's fun. It's fulfilling. It will give you stories for a lifetime. But where will it leave you in the end? Note the psalm closes explaining that the wicked won't stand in the day of judgment. Why is that? Verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The godly man who is a countercultural man, an unpopular man who won't go with the flow, what does he yet have? He has a relationship with the covenant God. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The God of all creation, the giver of blessing, knows Him. He continually knows Him. And the idea here, brethren, is more than being informed about a few things concerning His life. The sense is God knows in that He cares about, He attends to, He provides for, He protects, He loves, He secures. The Lord is near to the righteous. The Lord is our shade at our right hand. The Lord is an ever-present help in time of trouble. The Lord is a stronghold in the day of oppression. The Lord is a God who keeps our tears. The Lord holds us with His hand, guides us with His counsel, and afterward He will receive us into glory. Those are some of the Psalms' promises. Do you want to walk through this cursed world with a heavenly friend? With a father who delights to give good gifts to his children? Who is good and ready to forgive and abundant in steadfast love to all who call upon him? Do you want to arrive at the last day knowing you have a covering for your sin and you have a seat at God's table? then respond to blessings that God gives by living in a way that pleases Him. Because while the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. It's really simple, isn't it? They'll come to their end and they have nothing. Their hopes will be frustrated. Their fleeting happiness will turn to grief. They have no lasting city, no life with God, no pardon, no peace. Only the eternal judgment that falls on those who refuse to obey Jesus Christ. The psalmist is telling us plainly there are two ways and there's no third way. Either you are devoted to God and His Word and I'm not talking about being an almost Christian. You are devoted to God and His Word or you are destined for judgment. What's it going to be for us? Now, on a Sunday evening crowd, there's often the assumption Everybody here loves the Word. But who is the psalmist writing to, brethren? He's writing to God's professing people. And he's warning them. Do you really devote yourself to God and His Word? Is God the joy of your heart? And is His Word what you follow? Because that's the only way that leads to life. 
May we, may we take heed at this doorway to this altar. Blessedness or perishing. May we all be found to be blessed. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we pray that You would do Your work to search us. That You would unveil whether or not we have adopted the advice of the world, the behavior of the world, or the belonging to the world. Father, we pray that we would look and see and discover that we delight in Your Word. And if there is a waffling in delight, Lord, would You rekindle our joy? Would You cause us to see how sweet it is to know the Lord Jesus and to go His way because His way is the best way? Lord, would You help us by the power of Your Spirit to live in a, in a way that honors You at all times? For we need You and we want that intimate relationship with You that You would know us. And we ask this in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.